بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله حمدا يوالي نعمه ويدفع نقمه ويكافي مزيده وأصلي وأسلم على خير خلق الله محمد بن عبد الله وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم تسليما كثيرا رب اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري وحل العقدة من لساني يفقه قولي اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا علما وعملا وهدى وتقى يا رب العالمين uh, To all of you viewers at home Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh and welcome to a brand new episode of Islamica where we take your questions and seek to provide you with as complete answers as possible as per the guidance of the Quran and the prophetic example and based upon the deliberations and the reflections of the scholars of the four schools of thought. Uh, we begin however with a brief reminder um, that the Prophet وسلم, or in fact within the Islamic tradition, the Islamic legal tradition uh, known as fiqh, uh, there's something called taklif. Now the word taklif was a term which was discussed or disputed even uh, amongst the scholars of Islamic jurisprudence. And that was to say that what does it mean and why was it somewhat contentious? Uh, and then what are the underpinnings of this? The word taklif we use ordinarily to mean someone being legally accountable. Are you mukallaf or not? So if you're mukallaf, then you're, it's assumed or it's understood that you will stand before God on the day of reckoning and you will answer for your life, how you chose to lead it. Because ultimately you are imbued with your own agency and independent will. The question is how you choose to deploy that will, which channels you use to uh, pass through your energy and to make it into something concrete in this world. What sort of imprint did you choose to lead, leave in your family, in your workspace, in your own personal life between you and God Almighty himself? All of that is bound together within the concept of one being mukallaf, legally accountable. That is to say that there will be an accountability in the afterlife for what we did in this world. Too often we find that people, often those in positions of power and privilege, will go through life with a state of being in a state of obliviousness regarding the fact that they will be accountable, that no one ultimately is above the law. And while it is very common and indeed popular even for us to point out that those in power and authority and privilege uh, have you know, accountability, ought to be accountable and often uh, behave with a sense of impunity uh, is, the, is the complaint. However, the reality is Islam sees each and every one of us as being agents in our own way of our own will. And that is to say each of you, each of us have our own will and have our own little circles of influence and in that sense power and responsibility. And that responsibility needs to translate into you know, actions of amana, of trustworthiness, of responsibility. Else, otherwise, otherwise, what happens is they will be held to account either way, for better or for worse. And that is the word mukallaf. So why was this then uh, something contested by some scholars? They said because in reality, the notion, the reality is never going to be contested. Every human being, once they are 
you know, physically mature, they've reached the, the age you know, of, of, you know, awareness, they've passed puberty, there's no impediments kind of diminishing their sense of, you know, uh, their mental faculties and awareness and the like, and then they are ultimately beginning their account journey for accountability before God. That's agreed upon. But the word teklif itself, as a term itself, was something which was uh, discussed. And the reason is, the word mukallaf or taklif uh, is usually used in the Qur'an in, as something which is negated. It is, so Allah says, لَا نُكَلِّفُ نَفْسًا إِلَّا وُسْعَهَا We never um, charge you, task you with something. نُكَلِّف From the verb كَلَّفَ يُكَلِّفُ We never give someone taklif with more then they have the ability to bear. You're only tasked with something which you have the capacity to actually deal with, uh, ultimately. Uh, it may feel overwhelming. It may feel like you're kind of, it's all coming, uh, coming apart at the seams. But ultimately, Allah has your back. That is the ultimate Islamic Quranic teaching. That you are not on this journey on your own. You're not there alone. Rather, you are accompanied with His grace and His protection. And the more you have of goodness within yourself, the more ma'iyah or, if you like, spiritual proximity you have with your master maker, the control of the universe. And so, the word taklif is usually used is something negated. So it's saying we do not give taklif except in, a, in, in a, an amount which is commensurate with your ability. And the response came with the fact that there's an exception. We don't do taklif except XYZ amount. Still is by reverse understanding, therefore an assertion that there is taklif that's given. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, while he has made each and every one of us Islamically, legally, you know, spiritually accountable once we are mature and once we're adults in that spiritual sense of the word. He never tasks us with something which is greater than our capacity. It is something so pervasive within the Islamic uh, teaching. It's so uh, ubiquitous. It's widespread across the Islamic teachings to the point where one of the five Islamic maxims deals with the concept of ease itself within Islam, within the Islamic teachings. That is, al-mashaqqatu tajrib al-taysir. And simply rewarded saying, إِذَا ضَاقَ الْأَمْرُ التَّسَعُ وَإِذَا تَسَعُ الْأَمْرُ That when a matter is seen due to extenuating circumstances as becoming overly uh, onerous, beyond that which was intended and, uh, and uh, coded in by design, then the Islamic scholar's duty is to recreate the embedded ease which exists within the Islamic teachings. I'll repeat that. When some sort of extenuating hardship, which is not the norm, which is not coded in to the Islamic teaching itself, it's not coded in there, it's not embedded within the teaching, then the duty of the scholars who are teaching and imparting um, the teachings of Islam, their role is to, via the methods and mechanisms of ijtihad or scholarly expert uh, you know, um, endeavour, they then will come forward, assuming that they're truly qualified and sincere in their efforts and in their uh, expressions of, of their scholarship. They then will say this, this extenuating hardship leads to us recalibrating the teaching momentarily or from that transient moment of time to make it aligned with the norms of the Islamic teaching. So I'll give you an example very briefly before we go to a break. Fajr, Salah, is always meant to be, have a degree of being challenging. 
because waking up early is something which is challenging. That is something which is a task, but it's necessary for the spiritual growth and, and, and flourishing of the soul. However, if something was extenuating in this hardship, that one has to, is in the North Pole, and the day extends way beyond the norms, then the fasting would then have its time shifted to enable, allow that. And that's because this deen is a deen which is uh, calibrated to the human condition itself because it's from the creator of the human beings themselves. So we should traverse this life recognizing we're both accountable, we're both accountable, but also we're accountable for a master who's merciful and who is coded into the religion that ease which makes it possible for us to flourish as individuals through Islam. Question, can dreams be true? Uh, the answer to this question is that the Prophet والسلام, or in fact the Prophet Joseph in the Quran was known with uh, a, to have been given a particular gift, Joseph being the Prophet Yusuf السلام, after which a whole surah is mentioned in the Quran, Surah Yusuf. Excuse me. And therein, Yusuf السلام, he said, This is the meaning uh, of the uh, of what I've uh, seen. So it was a nocturnal vision, a dream. And thereafter, he, Ali Salam, was given the ability to understand its meanings. And he kind of went about that as almost uh, using that as a guide. Uh, this is something which is also known of the Anbiya, the prophets of God, that their dreams were dreams inspired with truthfulness. Their hearts were pure. They received truthful, good, uh, if you like, messages from Allah. And they knew how to steer that, navigate that in the best way as they move forwards with their lives. Uh, the Prophet ﷺ himself mentioned that dreams are of three types. And, and they are what scholars have referred to as Rahmaniya, Shaitaniya, and Nafsiya. So those coming kind of coming in from the they're just basically your thoughts by daytime, they're kind of trapped in the back of your mind. And as you sleep, as you kind of relax and you don't have any active, active thoughts of what you're doing actually in person then the thoughts which are in the back of your mind, they come to the fore. And that's basically from your nafs, from your own self. Then there's those which are, you know, referred to as whisperings or insinuations of shaitan, i.e. irrespective of what exactly it is, you know, whether it's shaitan himself doing it or, or, or the like, its effects are those which are, uh, you know, encouraged by, that shaitan will be pleased by, pleased with. That's to say, that a dream which is kind of a very scary, bad dream, a nightmare of sorts, if you like. Um, those sorts of things, you know, typically they leave a person who wakes up with that sort of vision in their minds, a uh, little scared, somewhat disturbed, upset, saddened, uh, grief struck. And those emotions, while they're not emotions in and of themselves that are to be kind of shunned or run away, you know, one runs away from, uh, their emotions, you recognize them, you appreciate them for what they are. But s simultaneously, they're not in and of themselves things which are, you know, you don't desire more and more of that, is the point, uh, at the same time. And those emotions often kind of, if not kept in check, or one doesn't kind of just monitor them, ob observe them, then one can end up getting uh, sometimes bridled, overwhelmed by them. And that sort of outcome is something which shaitan is typically pleased with because the person's kind of been stopped on their tracks from progressing. So it kind of creates, being aware of that creates something of an impetus to say, no, no, no I'm not going to let what happens in my sleep influence my behavior and deprive me of my happiness while I'm awake and, and, and you know, uh, alert. And in, in, in line with that, you have the statement of uh, Ibn Sirin, 
unto whom who died one ten hijriya and who is known to be uh, you know often giving uh, his opinion or interpretation of a dream what it could mean and to whom a book has been attributed falsely I should add um, about dream interpretation that book is totally it's, it's a fabrication it's not written by him it's an apocryphal uh, but actually he himself was known for you know giving providing some sort of dream interpretation he died Muhammad ibn Sirin died one ten hijriya so he. Um, had this famous saying, which is, I think, has a lot of uh, merit to it, saying, "What happens by night? Do not worry about it, so long as it's not actually something that you're doing by day. So if you see something by night, let's stay by night, and you know, don't let it influence your day. And so long as your days are good, don't worry about what happens in your sleep itself. So you're being a good person. You're taking care of people. You're avoiding harming people. You're worshiping God. You're being pious." And if you then have a, a sporadic, you know, bad dream, um, so to speak, then don't let it kind of deprive you of your joy and happiness and your peace of mind in your waking hours. That's, of course, if it's not a recurring dream that one's having a re repeated kind of sense of relived trauma, in which case perhaps one needs to seek some sort of professional guidance or help. Uh, in terms of the dream from God, that's something which is almost like a bushra, the Prophet said. It's good news, it's encouragement for you, for me, for us to kind of keep a steadfast on the path of goodness and that hopefully relief is coming on the way if that's the, the dream, etc. So it's just encouragement for you to keep doing what you do. It's not actually going to be a dream which is going to be re-prescribing or prescribing afresh something. You need to be praying certain with certain formula which you which didn't exist from the Prophet or the scholars of Islam thereafter explain who elucidated the teachings of the Prophet. So that's not uh, what a true dream is. A true dream, a good dream is a dream which encourages you to carry on in a steadfast manner to remain kind of consistent in doing that which is good, which kind of helps if anything give you gives you a spring in your step. Um, and this is something which is as I said from from the parts of the, the all this remains of profited. Uh, one forty-six of profited. In fact, in the hadith of uh, Abdullah ibn Yusuf al-Tinisi, uh, Taala, from he narrates from Hisham uh, ibn Urwa, from Urwa ibn Zubair, from Aisha Allahu anha, um, that hadith in Sahih Bukhari. It's in fact the um, it's in Kitab Badal Wahi, the first chapter of Sahih Bukhari. The Imam Bukhari brings forth this hadith um, with Tinisi from Imam Malik, going back to uh, to Aisha Allahu anha, that says that. The first, if you like, sense of revelation that the Prophet Muhammad got was the goodly dream, the right, righteous dream. Uh, he would never see anything by night except it would come true by day, almost like the, with the brightness, the strength of the light of day itself. And that's because, of course, he was a Prophet Alihi of um, the The next question is how to fight procrastination and your lower nafs. Um, these uh, are two, in my view, uh, they can be read as two questions which are the same or two independent questions. Um, there is a common denominator between you know, the lower nafs and procrastination, clearly, and thus it can be read answered in, as one question. Alternatively, the two are also distinct in the sense that what could be uh, driving the sense of procrastination would be a, a base trait and thus the nafs, but also it's very specific. Whereas the, the, the lower self, the base traits of a human being, you know, gluttony, sloth, 
gluttony means eating too much, you know, in, in a way, without there being any medical condition of, you know, obesity that needs treating or the like. The uh, sloth, where one just kind of continuously lounging around, uh, etc. Those sorts of things, which are referred to actually in the Christian tradition as being, I think, the seven cardinal sins, uh, which some uh, Christian uh, observers, commentators, and scholars described as being something of an overstatement in the sense it's not the cardinal sins, but these are the roots to the cardinal sins themselves. Um, and they're recognized within Islam as being things which are issues which need addressing and treating and remedying within oneself uh, to the best of one's abilities. These sorts of things are the base traits within a person, you know, uh, where they they lose the sense of being of keeping themselves in check and they just you know, kind of the mind loses its focus altogether uh, without any due reason. So the base trait is going to be is going to be addressed through things like the salah, through dua, through dhikr, through remembrance of the of the ephemera ephemerality and the shortness, the temporal nature of this life itself. That you know, life is short, and the stakes are high. Remembering that will help uh, you know get you on that journey of addressing the, the base self, uh, perhaps having good company, making sure that you have a routine and timetable. You remind yourself of your goal and your direction, and you try and put some sort of accountability checks. You make your goals smart, as they're called, specific, measurable, attainable, uh, that they are you know, uh, reachable, and kind of you go and review them uh, at, at times, and they're time me uh, measured. You can look it up, what the R stands for as well, within the SMART goals. But there's a sense of, you know, you, you're not just living, uh, you know, each day as it comes without any sense of, of direction, if you can, if you're able to do more than that. That's in terms of the base self. In terms of procrastination, sometimes you need to hear and think what's going on inside the mind. And sometimes that's, we've, you know, teased out with the help of a friend or a counselor or therapist, but at its root cause, the basis is sometimes the following. Sometimes I might become pro uh, a, procrast a pro procrastinator because actually I'm trying to be a perfectionist. I cannot deal with the idea of putting something out there unless it's going to be uh, an A-star level or beyond, and I can't deal with putting it out there, some contribution, if it's not at the very best, because I can't deal with the inner emotional pain of the experience of anyone, either actually or potentially in the future, leveling some sort of critique of, of, or constructive feedback or negative feedback. So the idea, because I experienced so much criticism when I was younger, let's say, that I now can't deal with any genuine feedback when I'm older. So what you need to do is not go back and try and blame whoever was responsible for your upbringing, but rather sometimes you might need to reconcile that, but above all you need to reconcile that within yourself. That's to say, actually, you have the love of God, you have the love of Allah, He has your back, you don't actually need, uh, you may need some affirmation from human beings, but you don't need that approval from people, and you're doing it for His approval, His God's approval. And therefore, you're going to put it out right now because who knows what good might come from that later. You can then always work to improve things later. So don't procrastinate, do things on time, keep yourself in check, and constantly keep working on it. And understand that's a, that's a process of almost creating new mental ways of thinking about it until that new mental way, i.e. not being a procrastinator, but being someone prompt, and being somewhat prompt, meaning you're doing it uh, you're not with a, uh, uh, with a view or a lens of perfectionism, 
That's a new way of thinking which you're going to have to adapt to and adopt over time. I don't mean, again, you procrastinate about adopting it. I mean that you are daily giving, having your dose of improvement until that becomes the real, the new norm, inshallah, of a better expression of yourself. Moving on to your next questions. Um, I'm in my early 50s and my daughters are early 20s. Are we allowed to go to Hajj? Uh, I'm going to answer this question, but we have a caller waiting. So let's take the caller question first. Salaam alaikum caller. Uh, you're live on air. What's your name? What's your question? And where are you calling from? Salaam uh, alaikum. Calling from London. Salaam uh, name is Hajj. Love bless you for your... First is Sajdeh Sahu. Uh, you know, I forget, I'm very forgetful that one Sajdeh I've done or two uh, and then what is the correct, you know, practice to, is it uh, after Tatayat and uh, the whole thing, I do two sajuds and do the salam then? That'll be fine. If you do two sajuds at the end of your, uh, your tashahud uh, and then do your salam, that's absolutely fine. That's one of the opinions on the issue in Allah knows best, yes. Your next question, uh, Brother Hashmi. To, to that because I'm very forgetful and I'm also, you know, tired with the head. Um, I cannot do a lot of sunnahs. So, um, especially... So in that I, case, I, you're doing I, your fard is, is acceptable, I'm inshallah. My and, and also for the vitter practice, what is the simple, basic practice because I don't know the way I can So when Hashmi uh, asked... Uh, the question about Sahu, that he is in a forgetful state nowadays quite a bit. Uh, is it sufficient for him to perform two sajdas or two prostrations prior to the uh, taslim thing? Assalamu alaikum warahmatullah. The response was yes, that is one of the views regarding how to perform sujood as sahu. Um, that one does it before the salam and thereafter does the salams and that's completed. Uh, of course, there are different views and different opinions within the madhahib. The situation being as it is, and with uh, him already being confused about the, the different number of rakahs, the expectation to try and do it according, right according to one mother versus another, etc., would be a rather onerous uh, task uh, and beyond his uh, beyond the capacity of what would be expected. So that suffices, inshallah ta'ala, and indeed this is uh, related from the Prophet himself. Regarding the other question of praying witr, yes, you can pray witr straight after your uh, fard of Isha, praying sunnah uh, after the fard, yes, you can pray it straight after the fard and then your your witr as well. As for joining your sunnah from Maghrib with the sunnah of Isha, as in praying the two rakahs with the intention of both Isha and Maghrib at the same time simultaneously, no, that's not permissible because they are maqsuda li dhatiha. That's to say, according to the mass majority of scholars of the four schools, the overwhelming majority, in fact, uh, over overwhelming majority of them, uh, that, that that's something that's absolutely not permissible because each is intended in and of itself. There's a, you could say, uh, a quasi uh, ijma or consensus of the scholars in that respect, that the Sunnah of Maghrib has its own functionality and the Sunnah of Isha has its own functionality and one would not be performing the two rakahs intending Dhuhr, uh, Maghrib and Isha and Fajr, for example, all of them in one go. Uh, moving on to the, the next question. On the day of Jumu'ah, it's mandatory to create uh, space for the leaders, elders in the first row. I think he means row. It says first row, even though they are not yet to arrive. 
Um, it's, it's mandatory. No, it's not mandatory uh, to do so. Yes, sometimes there are certain situations, such as, for example, a mosque may say there's a muaddin himself, uh, or, for example, um, you know, if, if there's a sp space which is already being reserved because they're already in the mosque, for example, or the like, then that's something which uh, is the practice of, of the masjid, then it's best to kind of um, uh, obviously go along with that. Uh, and even uh, if that's just an understanding, then it's good to re respect that. But that still leaves the rest of the first row, inshallah, open uh, for you. But yeah, if it's just more than taking the more than seat, I don't think will help uh, the smooth flowing of the Jum'ah by any stretch. Um, our last question uh, of the day, if you see someone having a heart attack, do you carry on praying or help him? The answer is, you'd obviously, uh, you, you, if, if there's something you can do, which of course in Charlotte there would be, and, and you have overriding, you have real sense it's a heart attack, you know, not someone just simply having a, you know, a cough or, or the like, of course, I, I'm assuming you know what you're talking about, medically speaking. Of course, you break the prayer and you go and tend to them because this is a case of Barura, and then you make up that prayer thereafter once things are uh, dealt with. I hope that's answered your question, inshallah ta'ala. Um, there are some fantastic questions here. When I'm here next, inshallah, I will try and answer them. Otherwise, of course, you can pose the question to someone else if you'd like to do so. Uh, Jazakallah khairan. As it always, Allah knows best. Until next time, from myself and from all the crew here in the studio, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. أطيعوا الله وأطيعوا الرسول وأولي الأمر منكم فإن تنازعتم في شيء فردوه إلى الله والرسول إن كنتم تؤمنون بالله واليوم الآخر